Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Typically, we are recording live at the Line Hotel, but for this summer, we are doing something a little different. We are doing Beer Me on the road. So whether it is a local brew pub or brewery or somewhere outside of Washington, D.C., we'll still be looking at the beer world through different lenses. Uh, Brewers, educators, importers, to get a different view, viewpoint of this fascinating and dynamic world that is beer. So for the first episode of Beer Me on the Road, uh, I was able to sit down with newly elected president of the D.C. Homebrewers Club, Omar Al-Nadawi. Uh, we sat down at Saloon, a very old school bar on U Street in Washington, D.C., and over a few pints, uh, we were able to have a discussion about malt. Listen in. So I'm joined here today um, by Omar Al-Nadal. I said it wrong. Please correct me. Omar. Al-Nadawi. Al-Nadawi. I even wrote it down phonetically and I got it wrong. Brava on my part here. Um, uh, so he is the newly elected president of the D.C. Homebrew Club. Congratulations. Thank you. And the reason why I wanted to speak with you today is because you are in the process of doing a really cool malt-driven experience. Now, in the past years, hops have kind of been the sexy thing in beer. Everyone focuses on hops. Oh, what hops do you use? There are a lot of beers that do single variety hops so that you can really smell and taste these particular hops. And I feel like consumers more and more are really understanding what certain hops taste like. They're beginning to understand, okay, so Southern Hemisphere hops are more tropical, more fruity, Pacific Northwest, piney, citrusy, like people know this. Um, However, I'm with you. I don't think malt gets its due as far as the role that it plays in beer and how each different varietal can really, really affect what the end result is in a beer. So tell us a little bit about this experiment. Start from the very beginning, kind of how you, how you started this, to put this together. Well, it starts with um, my passion for malt. Uh, I think it's the most important component of beer. Uh, I mean, of course, the, all the other components, water, yeast, hops are, are beautiful and important and, and critical in a, in a beer, and can, they contribute a lot, but malt is the heart of beer. You can brew a beer without hops, but you can't brew a beer without malt. True. So I think there has been uh, a certain underappreciation for malt uh, in the beer culture. I think this is particularly true, as you said, in the, in the United States, the United States uh, since the craft beer revolution started uh, in the last few decades. So I'm trying to, to do my part to uh, put in my two cents to correct this and uh, help discover uh, or shed light on some aspects of malt uh, where we can 
add a lot of flavor where we can uh, maximize what we can get out of this you know beautiful ingredient so uh, at DC Home Brewers we try often to to um, organize uh, group experiments uh, to include as many club members as possible uh, and have them actively participate in the in the uh, educational activities so that everyone can uh, you know get their hands dirty uh, and you know make the beers learn from the process and share that knowledge uh, with the other brewers and the rest of the club both uh, through interactions during the execution of the of the experiment and also during the the unveiling of the results so actually for this experiment we were originally thinking about uh, tasting or putting stouts to the test so but basically making the same stout recipe with different ones. yes okay. we're, we're thinking about uh, brewing potentially half a dozen uh, stouts, simple stout recipes mm -hmm. with the same base malt or pale malt uh, component, which would be about you know 85% of the of the beer, and using uh, a variety of dark roasted malts to make up the the remainder, 15% uh, or so, which would give that you know what makes a stout a stout. Yes. Uh, but because you know summer is. It was already here, and uh, we thought that you know fewer people, few people would be interested in, in drinking and sampling that many stouts in a row. Uh, we thought that to keep things interesting and to, to encourage people to participate and to sample the uh, the resulting beers, that we could probably modify this a little bit. And uh, the result, I think, the resulting concept was uh, equally as interesting. Uh, we decided that we my uh, you know, colleagues in the education committee uh, to come up with an experiment that uh, focuses on crystal malts, which are another uh, loved, sometimes hated ingredient of beer. Uh, okay, so why are they loved and why are they hated? So they are, they are loved because they provide a uh, a unique bit of sweetness, a warmth, you know, in terms of color. They provide a reddish tone to the beer. They provide a little bit of something, you know, really a spectrum of flavors, anywhere from subtle honey flavors all the way to burnt sugar and, and dark fruit flavors, depending on their level of, of caramelization that has been introduced in the, uh, in the malting and, and kilning process. So they are loved for you know reasons for these mm -hmm. qualities that they contribute to, to a beer, and they improve head retention and stability of foam. Um, you know, there are styles that you cannot brew without without a good crystal malt, but they're also hated uh, by a lot of brewers and a lot of beer consumers who prefer their their beers to be as dry as possible and as bitter as possible. So if you go to any if you look at any classic uh, West Coast IPA, not again, you're not going to find any trace of, of crystal malt. Uh, if you also, similarly, if you look, look at the uh, new wave of uh, hazy IPAs, you, yeah. are, uh, you will find flaked oats and flaked wheat, but you're not going to find uh, 
any crystal malts. So, because they are kind of looked down upon as these things that distract and take away from the um, uh, from the hop character, which okay. is what most people are. They're after, a lot they're of people after are after. Yeah, they, they they want their beers to be dry. They want them to be bursting with hop flavor, and they don't want any residual sugar or, 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 or color or uh, or you know chewiness, so to speak, to, to get in the way. So you know these are the reason in in a nutshell the reason reasons for which they are loved and really love so, you're, so you're doing crystal malt and you're doing this in what style of beer so we decided to to um, on a style that uh, highlights the uh, crystal malt mm -hmm. and also one really that cannot be brewed without a crystal malt so um, uh, we, we picked the English bitter best bitter style uh, which is a, a very drinkable uh, beer style, low ABV, very low, low in, low in yeah. alcohol, uh, easy to drink. It's not highly carbonated. You can drink three or four in a row without feeling, uh, you know, tipsy or inebriated. And ironically, and, not bitter. And ironically, not bitter. And, and ironically, not bitter. Exactly. I mean, the the, the name is, uh, is is quite misleading. Uh, but when brewed well, these you, these beers are. Exquisite and uh, quite refreshing, even in a in, in, in a hot weather. But like malt, malt is star of the show. Malt is the star of the show. Yeah. The hops play a supporting role, an mm -hmm. important supporting role. But and, you know, again, they they're supposed to be they have a little bit of solid bitterness, but malt is the is the key flavor component. So you're uh, doing a best bitter style. You are using crystal malts, and then you're using different variations of crystal malt. Right. So what you said you, you chose six different variations. Six different variations, and another beer that's sort of a control sample. I'll, I can tell you more about this. And uh, sorry, but for people just tuning in, I'm sitting down and talking with Omar Almadali. He is the uh, president of the DC Homebrewers Club. Uh, we're talking about an experiment uh, that the DC Homebrewers Club is doing uh, to explore kind of specific variations of crystal malts. So, what are the six different crystal malt variations that you are using? So, uh, just to list them. Mm -hmm. The traditional or the almost the default choice for brewing a, a, an English bitter would be to use a, an English crystal malt, usually in the medium range of color. So that's something we, we definitely want to include. Then we thought uh, the American crystal, uh, caramel malts or crystal malts, you, know, you can use the names interchangeably, yeah. uh, are often described as bland or, you know, uh, don't as they don't, you know, that they don't have a, a lot of uh, complexity in their flavor, so we decided to test that too. Uh, and then we thought maybe we can include a few other examples of continental crystal malt. So we added a Belgian crystal malt of similar level of uh, caramelization and color as the other two, and a German crystal malt known as uh, Caramunich. Then we. Uh, to include the um, some of the newer varieties or the less frequently used varieties, we added a, um, a new malt called Opal 44 from a, an American 
uh, craft monster. Uh, they call it, I think, Mecha Grade. And the final addition to the experiment was a uh, an, another English uh, specialty crystal malt called Karastan, which is labeled or usually referred to as a as a toffee malt. Uh, and I've been always curious about this for a while. Uh, and finally, it, it, we're not over yet. Actually, uh, we added a seventh beer uh, that we will brew or have brewed already uh, entirely with a new variety of specialty malt. So it's a a new malt that's called uh, Red X uh, that is basically it's a base malt, but is supposed to have some of the qualities of a crystal malt so it can contribute on its own some of the sweetness and color contributions that brewers usually need to get a crystal malt to, uh, in order to, to obtain. So we, uh, we got together and uh, agreed on recipe parameters, you know, what's the alcohol level going to be, what water uh, chemistry we're going to use, what, what amount of hops we're going to use. and. So everything, everything else in the in the recipe is the same for all the beers. Yes. Using the same hops. Yes. Though all the waters have to have the same pH and mineral content. Exactly. Um, and it has to have the same ABV. The only thing that you're changing. Same yeast, of course. So same yeast, yeah. yeah. Same yeast. The only thing that you're changing is just the malt variety. Yes. And okay. so we're trying to make this the only variable. Okay. Uh, as as you know, as close as we can get to that, so that when we try the six or seven beers next to each other, we can, with a certain level of confidence, attribute that difference that we perceive to that one variable and uh, try to eliminate the noise from other uh, differences in process or, or, or recipes. And so the idea then is to really, really get a grasp of like a real life experience of what these malts, how they affect the beer, what the mouth feels like, what the aroma is like, what the sight is like, what it tastes like, everything. Yes. And this is because, well, I mean, you're obviously doing this for fun, but you know, when you read descriptors, it only gives you so much information. Correct. That's correct. Uh, when you read the, the descriptors that are available on uh, online stores or uh, at the description packets of uh, la or labels of, of products, you see a lot of language that uh, sometimes is redundant. Sometimes uh, is really you read it and it makes you know it sounds like a lot of information, but then what does it mean? Uh, you hear that, you read that it's, you know, toffee, caramel, and dark fruit, but what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, no, so I mean, taste is so subjective. So, you exactly. know, like dark, it may, to you, it may taste exactly like dried figs, but to me, it may taste exactly like, you know, Werther's chocolate candy or uh, caramel candy or whatever. So, you, it's good to place that kind of in your memory. Exactly. And we want to also try and and see, uh, well, of those 12 or 15 or, you know, 
there's a multitude of malts and of options that you can use for a recipe. You, you look at any malt there and say like it's suitable for various, for you know, for for a broad range of, of styles. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's good. But which one is the best? Which one is oh, the so right like, option? Which, which malt is best for an English style bitter? Okay. Uh, I mean that's a a secondary uh, ob objective. I know it's. Uh, not everyone is is going to be very enthusiastic about this one because you know, it's not everyone's making. Not everyone. Yeah. I mean, I love English styles, but yeah. not everyone does. Uh, but I think that's a that's also a a, a bonus uh, result that we're gonna get, you know, out of out of this experiment. But the uh, really the key objectives is to learn about what these malts bring to the table, mm -hmm. uh, and also to. You know, enjoy the experience. Now, the uh, what I hope that we'll be able to get out of this is that uh, is the fact that British English bitter was really not the original. Uh, you know, we didn't aim for an English bitter, but in attempting to create a a, a blank canvas for which. On which the uh, the crystal malt of choice can shine. Yeah. We ended up with an English bitter. So it's just because it's you know what we liked about the the, the recipe is that it it allows the malt to shine. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't get in the way. It's just enough bitterness to make the beer drinkable, uh, yeah. but not too much that it over you know it uh, overpowers uh, the malt. And also, not a lot of malt character from other sources, so as to, you know, uh, complicate the picture. Yeah. It's the least complex, least complicated uh, recipe that we can come up with to evaluate a crystal malt. <laughs> I gotcha. So, as far as the process goes, this has been brewed, and a lot of them are already in bottle, correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Most of the beers have been packaged, they're conditioning. And uh, definitely, all of them will be ready to try uh, on June twentieth when uh, our club meets for uh, for its next monthly meeting, okay. which will be at uh, Smoke and Barrel in, in Annas Morgan. Nice. Uh, people are encouraged to, you know, come find us uh, on on Facebook, GC Home Brewers. Uh, we have a Google group as well, and. Uh, it's probably the most welcoming group of people I've ever encountered. We are always wel you know, welcoming of new members. Yeah. Now, uh, and just to take a step back here, for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar, people who are new to homebrewing, uh, what is the purpose of conditioning in the bottle? Like, after you bottle it, why do you let uh, that beer settle? Well, there are two paths. After okay. the, uh, you have brewed the beer, mm -hmm. then you have fermented the beer. Now the beer is basically done. The yeast has done its work. Comes packaging after that. And there are two paths or multiple paths that you can come, uh, in which you can go uh, from there. Uh, a lot of people, myself included, will put the beer in bottles, add a small amount of uh, sugar solution to give the yeast a little bit more food to chew on and produce a little bit of extra carbon dioxide so that the beer comes carbonated and lively and mm -hmm. not flat and, and, and boring. And that also adds to the aroma and, you know, 
some of the mouthfeel. Mm, most contributions to, yeah. to the flavor and aroma has been done like in the primary fermentation, but you know, carbonation and conditioning helps clarify the beer. I think you know, time spent in the bottle uh, mm -hmm. helps you know uh, the yeast uh, allows the yeast to do its job, get the the extra carbonation, and then settle down. Yeah. Uh, but when you pour that beer, that carbonation allows for the aromas to kind of pop out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, yeah. and, and that, uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, of course, the other path is uh, for people who think that, you know, bottling is, is, is cumbersome, is to keg the beer. And you can uh, do a forced carbonation, forced introduction of, of carbon dioxide into, into the beer by pouring your entire beer batch into a keg, you seal it and you apply carbon dioxide uh, pressure from a, uh, uh, from, a uh, from a bottle, a carbon dioxide bottle, and you can achieve similar results in much shorter periods of time. Uh, bottle conditioning often takes two weeks, sometimes more if the, uh, if the beer is high in alcohol, but um, Carbonation in, in a keg can take as few as a you know a few days, two or three days, or less even. I gotcha. Okay. So at this point, they will be a hundred percent ready by the by the meeting on uh, the twentieth. You have to chill them a little bit. Chill them a little bit. Yeah. Yes, chill them a little bit. But <laughs> Not too much though, because they're English style, so you don't want them too cold. You don't want them too cold. Um, now, have you has the DC Homebrewers Club done other experiments like this? We've done uh, well, not exactly like this, but right. perhaps even larger in scope. Um, this past spring, winter spring, uh, we did a an experiment uh, in which we made about eleven different beers. Uh, the idea of that one was to constrain the brewers to one type of malt and one type of hops but give them the freedom to use styles, recipes and yeast and to go crazy and test the limits of what can be done with just one malt and one hop. But they could add anything else they, they wanted. They could do anything but Any not other Ingredients. Okay, so they couldn't add like fruit, spices. No. Okay, okay. They can use any any form of uh, any type of you know microorganisms for fermentation. Okay. But the, in terms of ingredients, those were the the, the, the limits. And so they couldn't use additional malt. They couldn't use additional. Malt. They cannot. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing uh, it now. So you know, I think the motivation for that experiment was. Sometimes you, you go on a forum and you see a brewer saying, well, I have, you know, just this one malt and just a few types of hops. What can I possibly brew other than a, you know, a, a simple pale ale? Yeah. So in that experiment, we wanted to test the, we wanted to, to accept the challenge and say, well, what can't you brew with just one malt and one hop? Mm -hmm. So we had like 11, 10 or 11 completely different beers. Yeah. We had um, a Berliner Weiss uh, that was fermented with three different microorganisms. We had Brett Saisons. We had Belgian Blondes. We had an ESB, an English Special Bitter. Yeah. We had Alt Beers. We had Kolsch's. We had Pale Ales and IPAs. We had people collect 
uh, yeast from their backyards. Um, we had people use three-hour boils to get different colors and different malt, malt expressions. So yes, I mean, no one managed to, to brew a stout from one you know from yeah. one malt, but the the variety of, of, of beers. Uh, was really outstanding, and that's wonderful. The, creative, I love that. You could not walking in into you know to that room and, and trying all those beers. You could not have tell told that 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 those came from the same sack of grain and the same bunch of hops. Yeah. Uh, so that that was a fun experiment that we did this year. Uh, you know, a, a year uh, before that we did a. Uh, a similar experiment, but uh, the variable in that one was another overlooked uh, component of, of, of beer, uh, which is uh, grain adjuncts. We wanted to basically brew a dozen of the same, a dozen uh, batches of the same beer, uh, with the one variable being. You know, twenty percent of the fermentables coming from an unusual grain, or a, you know, what we call it, adjunct. So, like uh, spelt or rice or corn. So these would be the uh, the usual suspects. Okay. Oats, rice, um, rye, wheat, spelt, but then we had buckwheat and amaranth. And sorghum, and uh, I, I can't even remember all the all the grains that we had. Um, we 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 set out to test to test six of them. We ended yeah. up testing thirteen different yeah. grains. Some of them you could just toss into the mash right away. Others required a cereal mash, you know, like boiling, cooking the grain basically. Say- Based on the grain, it greatly affects how you're handling it. Yes, yes, that, that's absolutely you know, true. It can go. I mean, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm in no way, shape, or form a brewer, but from what I understand, there are certain ones that are more of a pain in the ass than other ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's uh, that was what. That's the fact that some of our brewers experienced. Uh, All right. So what's brewing the most, quinoa what's the is different pain? from using flaked barley. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What's the what's the what's the grain that requires the most TLC? What's the what's the diva of the grain world? Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think it was either buckwheat mm-hmm. or uh, amaranth. I think. Yeah. Oh, teff. Oh, it's teff. Yeah, it's okay. teff. Teff, an uh, ancient grain originating from what North Africa? Yeah, some of those were like really hard to grind because yeah. they're tiny. Uh, or required a cereal mash, and cereal mashes are notoriously, you know, uh, unpleasant processes because you have this pot of boiling gelatinous liquid and of you know of, of, of grain and and water that you have to watch like a hawk for an hour while the uh, the grains you know get ready to uh, to be introduced. To, ready to be introduced to the to the mash, so it's, it's a it's an almost almost dangerous process actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a really exciting experiment. I'm I'm really intrigued to see how this turns out and what malt ran, reigns supreme. Um, yeah. So, listeners out there, if you are interested in homebrewing at all, 
there are a lot of really great shops uh, in the area. Um, if you go on uh, the Homebrewers Association website, uh, they can point you in the direction of a lot of different shops, a lot of different resources. DC Homebrewers Club, like I said before, they are by far and away the most welcoming group of people, the sweetest group of people. They will answer all of your questions. They will welcome you with open arms. They will give you a lot of free beer. <laughs> so, you know, check out their Facebook group uh, and go to their meetings um, because they're a lot of fun. Uh, Omar, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for having me, sir. And congratulations on your new uh, president of DC Homebrewers Club. Um, thank you. It's, uh, it's exciting uh, to see these uh, experiments continue and continue to see the work that the Homebrewers Association, or the, sorry, DC Homebrewers Club is doing for uh, beer education in the DC area. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything that you need, uh, reach out to me at BeerMeRadio on Instagram or BeerMeRadio at gmail.com. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Uh, this has been Beer Me on Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. We'll catch you next week. Cheers. <laughs>